0: It is my immense pleasure to present UVic's next president, Jamie (laughs) Castles.
1: UVic is rightfully proud of uh, our achievements today and we continue to build on a hugely successful foundation and a culture of excellence.
2: How publicly willing UVic is um, to make an assertion of their beliefs and the goals that their faculty holds. And the fact that that's lacking is a bit disappointing.
1: And the fact that these are challenging times for universities, but I relish those challenges, and I look forward to helping this university meet and indeed surpass surpass them.
2: I was the only woman in the class, and it felt very, very othering.
1: The university's collegial culture, uh, the respect that members of this community have for one another, and the way in which they engage with uh, with the wider the wider community and indeed the world.
3: The University of Victoria prides itself on being dedicated to diversity and inclusion. But is this image too good to be true? Is there something here that we're not seeing? On this week's episode of Taking Up Space, we investigate the experiences of women in STEM. We would like to note that we use the language of women throughout this episode, but we acknowledge that the issues raised impact all gender minorities in STEM, as well as other underrepresented groups. STEM, that's S-T-E-M, stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And these fields are a vital part of our increasingly technological world. So, if the people who are building everything from banking and security software that we use to the medical equipment we rely on are a group of mostly white, cisgender, heterosexual, affluent men, how does that impact our lives? In huge ways, it turns out. So, we wanted to know what exactly UVic is doing and isn't doing, not only to get more diverse candidates in their STEM programs, but to keep them in.
4: Just an introduction of myself? Yeah. Okay. Nicola
3: is just about to graduate.
2: Yeah. Uh, My name is Nicola Watts, and I am an electrical engineering student at UVic. I'm in my fifth year at UVic, and I'm going to be graduating this August.
3: So she's had years of being othered and feeling out of place in engineering classes, dating back to her orientation.
2: And one of the courses that was like required to be taken um, was like Ender 130, so everyone takes this course.
3: This required course covers professionalism, professional development, and behavior.
2: Uh, at one point, we had a guest lecturer come in from the Equity and Human Rights Office on campus, and the focus of that lecture was male privilege, which... I thought was quite a good lecture to have. Um, entering engineering, knowing the culture in school, knowing the culture beyond that in industry, and the statistics on that um, in terms of representation. This lecture started off as anyone would expect it to. It was talking about many different examples of male
3: privilege. Like hiring practices that favor men or people who don't have the capacity to get pregnant,
2: so companies don't have to deal with maternity leave. They talked about different ways in which um, language is used as well towards women. So how if you're a woman or someone who presents as a woman and you're speaking in a way that is, um, you know, assertive, you might not be read as assertive like a man would be, but you would instead be read as bossy. And how there's many different ways in which language is kind of gendered along those lines and how the connotation for women is negative when kind of performing the same actions that men would. So that was kind of like all very interesting and insightful. Next, he moved on to talk about the like use of language in terms of insults and how language is really gendered when it comes to insults. Insults that are basically only insulting because they're about women. You call someone a bitch or, you know, uh, any other language an insult. It's often uh, insult because it's feminine. So there's many, many different uh, examples you can think of that the negative connotation is due to the feminine connotation associated with it.
3: All of this sounds wonderful. The university is providing this resource so that the entire class
2: is being exposed to the realities of gender inequality. But then this class kind of like derailed a bit. And there was like a lot of like hubbub from students, kind of like some guys raising their hands and saying, well, you know, when I get a, when I get called a bitch, I am offended. And he was like, yeah, yeah, Um Totally, like, but the reason why you're offended is because of this feminine connotation. And all these people in class were, like, disagreeing. No, no, I get offended when I'm called a bitch because I'm being called a bitch. And it was just really clear that the, like, understanding was lacking. Um, But the result of this was just kind of the whole class, like, laughing about the situation. After this, the lecture turned into a complete joke. It was, like, people laughing. And I remember sitting there and really just feeling like, wow, that whole lecture for so long was like very much speaking to you, things I know will impact me and being kind of grateful that other people who are going to be working alongside me in industry later in my life were hearing all of that. Um, it kind of turned to instead me being disappointed and seeing that a lot of people were like lacking maturity in addressing that topic. Um, it was a bit disappointing. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it was, yeah, just like this kind of sinking moment. I remember sitting and like, Lecture was derailed. You could see that the lecturer was feeling a little bit unenthused with where the topic had gone uh, and looking around at myself, like around myself in this lecture hall.
3: There was only a handful of women in the room and they all looked around at each
2: other. And it was just kind of a palpable feeling that I felt like in association with these other women who were just like, wow, this is disappointing. And, you know, it'll only continue to be this way in school, in work and so on.
3: We wanted to learn about how this continues in industry.
0: Um, I'm Leanne Swain, or Dr. Leanne Swain, and uh, I'm an associate professor in neuroscience, um, technically in the Division of Medical Sciences here at UVic. So we spoke with some
3: women who have been working in STEM about their experiences.
0: For example, I was at an Easter party last night, and um, one of the guests... um, was like there was a bunch of people who were from the same type of work, and so she was like, "Oh, are you also from that type of work?" And I was like, "Oh no, I'm at the University of Victoria." And uh, she was like, "Oh, uh, what are your what's your program?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm a professor." And I was like, "Really? Is my skincare regime that good?" <laughs> like, and uh, and I'm like, "Okay, maybe you think I'm a continuing student, but like, why is the assumption that I'm a student?" You know.
3: This is a textbook example of unconscious bias, which are social stereotypes about certain groups of people that individuals form outside of their own conscious awareness. This leads to assumptions made surrounding certain professions,
0: like how. We don't think of women as professors, and that's ingrained in us, you know, and it's changing, but it's still pretty much ingrained. And so women are also, like, equally biased against women, right? In non traditional women roles. And that's, like, that is a big problem.
3: Unfortunately for Dr. Swain, the experience of unconscious bias at that Easter party was not new.
0: So there's quite a few studies um, showing that um, women um, face a lot of unconscious bias in their opportunities in um, you know to get to where you know to even become a professor. So getting research positions and that sort of thing, um, and then once they're professors, getting uh, grants and even like publishing, there's a lot of gender bias, um, in science. I can't actually do anything to change those things. I think that's really frustrating. So I guess like frustration is one thing, um, that you sort of face on a daily basis, I guess that you sort of have to, I'm generally a positive person. And I think that's allowed me to You know, I do get upset about stuff like that.
3: This is just the tip of the iceberg for bias, and it impacts women professors.
0: So, I think for women faculty, it's particularly hard, especially if you're like the only woman in a particular group of faculty, because you're you're constantly um, sort of experiencing this unconscious bias from your colleagues who don't. It's not intentional, right? It's just this is the way that we're raised and but you're aware of it as someone who's receiving it, right?
3: Women professors don't only experience this from their colleagues.
0: But you also are from your students. So students expect women professors to be nicer. They ask for more, like, leeway in, you know, assignments and deadlines. And if if you are a bit of, like, you know, a stickler for details or you're not super motherly, that actually is, like, held against you. And you, you know, there's very good data on... Um, Uh, for like a specific example, very good data on student evaluations being highly gendered and they're actually like super gender biased and they shouldn't be used to evaluate women professors. So, and there's tons of studies just showing that there's different expectations from uh, like from on male and female professors.
3: There's actually different expectations for women in these fields.
0: So it kind of comes at you from all sides, right? And then I think when the pro, like one of the big problems is when you raise these issues or talk about them, There's a lot of gaslighting, like people don't want it to be a real problem. So like, is it really that bad? Or like, maybe you're just imagining it or, you know, oh, maybe you just really look young or like, there's always some excuse for it, but it's like, that doesn't really help because sort of pretending like it's not a problem doesn't actually solve the problem. And it doesn't, it doesn't help with the frustration and it's widely felt like, I think people sort of tried to not talk about it as a way to make it seem like it wasn't real
3: So, to recap, women professors are often affected by unconscious bias from colleagues in the broader scientific community, students who hold you to different standards than male professors, and then often are gaslit into believing it's not even happening. Working in STEM, all these things add
0: up. I'd like the saying, it's like, a ton of feathers still weighs a ton. And so if you have all of these things that are piling up on you, like, why would you stay? Like you were saying earlier, like... There's a lot of reasons. If you have a lot of reasons to go, like what's keeping you around, <laughs> right?
3: So what kept Dr. Swain going?
0: Um, I played rugby <laughs> um, for a long time. Yeah. And um, and now I lift weights and I find that's really important. Like I, I have like some days I'll be super frustrated and I'll be like, well, you know what? I get to bench tonight. And so I'm just going to focus on that.
3: Splitting her life into two priorities gives her an outlet to manage her frustrations.
0: So, I mean, my, like, that's, that's the, my way that I've found works best in my life is like, I've always been kind of dual focus. Like I have two lives. One life is my like athletic life and one life is my work life. And, um, having those two kind of like a balance, balancing them out. So there's sometimes you'll have successes in one and sometimes you'll have successes in the other. And failures in one and failures in the other has been a way that I balance out things and like disappointments and struggles that I've had because I'm like, okay, like I can't get too upset about this because that's going to affect my squats and I really want to hit this number tonight, right?
3: Which is one way to deal with it.
0: It's just like, it's a, it's kind of a trick, but it keeps me physically fit, which like in a super stressful job where you're sitting a lot, like I realized like, you know, when I wasn't as focused on training as I am now, I was like, I don't think that I'm going to be able to continue on in this career for like my you know the rest of my life until I retire if I don't factor in some like physical like more hardcore physical activity to deal with the stress but also to deal with like being a healthy person right and so I was kind of I made this sort of promise to myself like if I was like I'm going to put this into my life and if I can't succeed as a professor with with like this in my life then that's not what I should be doing
3: And she recognizes what a privilege that is.
0: And I've also had the privilege to, you know, uh, know that if worse came to worse, I wouldn't be on the street because I have, like, parents who could, you know, support me if I needed to. So, like, even just that sort of mental, like, I have a, you know, there's there's support structures in my life that would be able to support me if everything else failed if i if i didn't have that support structure in the back of my head i don't know how my decisions would have been made differently um income inequality can also um really impact on who ends up in stem and who ends up like thriving in stem right so that was just my my pact with myself and it's ca- it's helped keep me, like, sane in a lot of instances where I might have just gotten, like, super overly frustrated and said, to heck with this, you know. But instead I'll just go, like, squat it out or, like, bench it out. <laughs> yeah.
3: Working out is a protective measure that helps Dr. Swain focus on what she can control rather than the structural inequality that she faces in her career.
0: So it kind of comes at you from all sides, right?
3: <laughs> Speaking of structural
2: inequality, so... An interesting thing that happens, I think...
3: This is Nicola again.
2: ...is that women who are themselves oppressed will kind of oppose the concept of being oppressed.
3: Nicola explained that women exist in a society that has a static vision of who can be an engineer. Women are told that engineering is a boys club, not a place for women, and that male biology lends itself to technical, logical thinking. Women in engineering may come to expect these attitudes and behaviors associated with these thoughts... And at some point, these behaviors and attitudes may stop just being expected and start being believed. This is textbook internalized sexism, which is the involuntary perpetuation of sexist beliefs and frameworks. We are all socialized into believing certain things about gender, and internalized sexism is all the sexist and misogynist things that we believe about women without question. Which translates in this case to... Women who are engineers believing narratives about who can be engineers, and doubting their peers and themselves.
2: For a long time, I had a lot of friends who didn't associate with the idea of, like, maybe feminism or other belief systems built that they maybe would benefit from, especially being, like, women in engineering.
3: The real question isn't if it exists, but why it exists. Why would some women resist feminism or distance themselves from the label of women in engineering?
2: Maybe the better way to phrase it would be uh, if you're someone who like constantly speaks to like the fact that you're a woman, you are trying to use that in some way. So a common narrative is like, um, you know, preferential hiring occurs and girls only get good co-ops because they're girls, because we're at this point in our society where, you know, your qualifications aren't. Considered, it's, like, in an effort to be, you know, politically correct or inclusive and diverse, people are ignoring the true qualifications um, and instead hiring, like, women for the sake of hiring women. And people
3: actually think that women get certain privileges in STEM, like choice co-ops, just because they're
2: a woman. Some people think... It's probably not due to your credentials or your qualifications. Um, So I think one reason why women in engineering might be a little bit reluctant to super associate with the title of like a woman in engineering um, is because they just want to be an engineer and to have anyone, whether it's men or women, be constantly pointing out the fact that they are, um, you know, not the typical archetype of what an engineer is. Um, kind of challenges their ability to just exist as an engineer.
3: So people think women get an easy ride in school. And something happened to Nicola where this became very, very clear. And it happened recently.
2: Um, yeah, that was really recently. She was in a lab at UVic. So in my in my faculty in intellectual engineering, there's not that many women. The UVic also doesn't really slip the, the exact um specific enrollment rates, so I don't know the percentage specifically, but it's somewhere 10 to 15% women in in my courses. So Nicola already knew she was a minority. One lab supervisor made sure she
3: felt it too.
2: So I was in a te- technical elective um, that had a lab component and sitting down for the first lab with my lab partner um, and everyone else in this classroom. And uh, the lab supervisor started talking a bit about what uh, what the year was going to be like in this course and his expectations of all of us, um, the expectations of the course, the project, and so on. But then things took a turn. The lab supervisor stopped going through the course outline and began just like speaking directly to me. The only woman in the class. He began talking about how he um, wasn't going to treat me any differently because I was a woman. I wasn't going to have any easier of an experience because I was a woman in his class. Um, so not to expect that and he went on to elaborate and say that he knows that out in industry things will be much harder for me than it will be for anyone else here in this room so even though like that's the case um, I'll be okay um, and it'll be okay once I get out in industry but just know that he's not going to take it any easier on me because I'm a woman um, and I was kind of like okay, nodding along and I could see my lab partner looking at me and I could feel all these other people who like now were no longer receiving a lecture. They were just listening in on what was a one-on-one conversation between me and this person Um, and totally unwarranted. I hadn't spoken to this guy beforehand. I didn't know him at all. A lot of things about that experience were pretty
3: bewildering, but one of the most confusing things about it was
2: this idea that You know, that was even wanted by me that like I wanted him to affirm my ability to go out into the workplace and do well. Like it was coming from a nice place, but it was funny because, you know, I know that of myself. I don't necessarily gain a lot from having someone publicly make these assertions, uh, especially when he doesn't know me. You know, Mm -hmm. he doesn't know the quality of my work at that point. He doesn't know my technical knowledge or my competence in any way. Um, so, though it's nice that he kind of was generally asserting that he believes, um, that I would be okay out in the workplace, what he might've just been saying was, I believe that women can be competent in the workplace, um, which is a bit of a funny statement to just make spontaneously. Nicola doesn't think that this instructor
3: was intending to make her feel uncomfortable. But what is clear here is that there's a lack of knowledge around how to
4: interact with women in STEM. We talked with another professor about this as well. Um, My name is Dr. Stephanie Willerth, and I'm a Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering here at the University of Victoria. I also direct our undergraduate program in biomedical engineering and our Center for Biomedical Research. We asked Dr. Willerth, why do you think engineering
3: specifically has difficulties with diversity as opposed to a different field?
4: Um, This is actually a really uh, interesting question to me. I do believe this, that engineering has an advertising problem (laughs) where... Um, we aren't good at promoting ourselves to the general public. Even Dr. Willerth was reluctant to associate with engineering initially. I didn't want to call myself an engineer for the longest time. And I think I finally filed the paperwork two weeks before graduation to get my full two dual degrees in biology and chemical engineering. For most students,
3: the path to becoming an engineer relies on decisions made years before
4: most people are even thinking about engineering. One of my colleagues, Dr. Mary Wells, who's now the dean at Guelph, but before then she was the dean of diversity at Waterloo, she did a big study on this. And one of the biggest factors about whether or not someone even in high school goes into engineering is the quality of your physics teacher, which... um, is one of those things that should not be determining who goes into a field. And so uh, we're working to change some of the admissions requirements just so we can get a broader pool of applicants even coming in. Because if you're you're losing students based on choices they've made in 10th grade, it's, it's not helpful. Family support also influences the choices of young adults
3: in picking their path.
4: Another thing is if they have a relative who's an engineer. And so you'll see it all the time with dads who bring their sons. Um, You have dads who are mechanics, and they they want their son to be an engineer so they can have a better life. And so what I always say is I wish I could start getting their moms to bring me their daughters Mm -hmm. to, you know, the UVic recruiting days. Beyond recruitment, retention is a big problem.
3: Often the discussion on women in STEM focuses on increasing diversity by increasing enrollment. But what happens once women are enrolled? Enter the distinction between diversity and inclusion. Here's Dr. Swain.
0: So I think inclusion is kind of like making everyone feel like they belong, and like listening to everyone's voices, and caring that everyone feels like they belong.
3: This feeling of belonging is crucial for retention.
0: So it's just more, it's more like the environment and the atmosphere. Because you can be diverse, but if you're not inclusive, then people don't feel like they belong, and they're not going to stay. You can do a bunch of hiring, but are people going to stay if they don't feel like they're part of the group? No. Like... It's not that's not solving the problem. So thinking about retention and thinking about inclusive environments is actually needs to happen in concert with diversity um, and equity efforts.
3: Looking specifically at engineering, a national study conducted by Engineers Canada found that women account for 20 percent of total enrollment in undergraduate engineering programs in Canada. Enter retention problems, and it makes sense the same survey found that women account for only 12.8% of practicing professional engineers in Canada. Dr. Willerth discussed the challenge of being held as a representative of a whole group.
4: When you are, even in a, a minority or in a, a gender minority, um, it's a, it's often sometimes hard if you're the only one and you're being held up as a lot of things to a lot of different groups. And so that's why you need at least a critical mass, so then you aren't just like the one girl in engineering um, that you're sort of allowed to be yourself. These difficulties
3: impact opportunities.
4: And so I think that's actually one of the things that makes me the saddest about this is I'm like, engineering is so awesome. And then we're limiting the population who can be exposed to some really cool careers. And, um, definitely, I think even in high school or when you go to university, you need to find your group of people who will support you, um, despite these challenges, whether it is discrimination, whether it's homesickness and things like that, um, That having a good group of people who will support you is, I think, really critical.
3: So we looked into two of the groups of people who aim to support women and minorities in engineering at UVic.
5: Okay. Hello, my name is Megan Powell. Uh, I'm in my uh, fourth year of a Bachelor's of Computer Science at the University of Victoria.
3: Megan is the co-president of one of those two clubs.
5: This past semester, as well as... um, one or two other semesters, I've been uh, the co-president of a club called Women in Engineering and Computer Science. And uh, in this role, um, with our team of uh, members, other students, um, we have um, tried to uh, support uh, all the students that are in the Faculty of Engineering, um, which includes Computer Science, um, and provide um, services and activities for them. Um, but with a focus on helping uh, female uh, students to uh, get to know each other, get to see who's out there.
3: Women in Engineering and Computer Science, or WEX, does all kinds of outreach to increase enrollment in those programs.
5: And we also um, like to do uh, community events where we go and we um, do workshops with um, students of all ages, to be examples of what, um, what women could do uh, after high school, and to introduce them just generally and in a fun kind of hands-on way to um, engineering and computer science uh, concepts and stuff. But increased enrollment for women isn't the only important consideration. And to um, uh, help uh, decrease the number of um, students who would leave engineering, like through the kind of leaky pipeline uh, metaphor. Could you explain what that is? Okay, so my understanding of the leaky pipeline... A phenomenon, a metaphor to describe the continuous
3: loss of women in STEM. Is that, um, over a series of time... So, like the four years that it takes to do an undergraduate degree...
5: Students will not complete their this four-year t- time and will drop out at different times. But most of the people who are dropping out are women. Or people who belong to other underrepresented groups, um that leave or drop out in relative to kind of the the average. And there are lots of reasons why this could be happening. But um, I think that the ability to retain um, students in these programs is just as important as um, doing outreach uh, and getting them to join the program in the first place, right?
3: So what's happening is that there's a big push to get women into STEM but it's like funneling water into a pipe full of holes. So Megan wonders...
5: Because what's the point if they don't stay? They don't feel like they belong. But the important thing is to um, encourage people and support them, like regardless of what they sort of think is going to happen, if that makes sense.
3: So this once again brings inclusivity into the conversation. Like, okay, we recruit all these students, meet the quota of diverse candidates, and then what? Whose job is it
5: to make sure everyone
2: stays? Do you collaborate with the faculty in these efforts? Are they totally
5: student-led? So we have a very supportive uh, faculty sponsor, Dr. Yvonne Cody. And um, she is a resource for the leaders of our club. Um, especially when um, there's a transition, I suppose, from between semesters. Um, but I'd say really, Wax is entirely student-led. Um, we have Yvonne support. Um, we have there are professors in, for example, the computer science department, who know about us and speak highly of us and recommend us, um, especially when they have like a student who may need help or may need a resource. So. I'm very
3: proud of that. And it's a lot of work. But they do it because they see how important it is.
5: In terms of being student-led, it's important to recognize that, like any club, WEX happens because we have these student leaders and student volunteers. And um, it takes a lot out of the volunteers to coordinate both outreach, review sessions, and social activities, Um and we really want to be active, and we want to be big. Do you think that
2: initiatives on like diversity and equity and inclusion should come from a student level, or should the faculty kind of also have involvement or a role or group
5: themselves that plays into that? I think it's really important to have faculty that um, support diversity and that can speak speak openly and honestly about um, their beliefs and their values. Um, So going beyond like a faculty-wide sort of promise or mandate or whatever, um, it really doesn't mean as much as when a professor says, hey, are you still involved in WEX? That's a great group. Um, Glad to hear they're still doing well. Because I mean, that's really going out of their way more. and it's more tangible, it's more personable. I think there are a lot of elements of being being at university um, that you see and you think it's just sort of, it feels official, it feels sterile, it feels like it's a rule or a procedure, um, and that people in certain positions, like their jobs, just have to follow them. Like you don't, and you don't maybe really know what they think or whether they really care. I think it's really common for diversity um, um, what was the word? For like inclusion practices to be an afterthought. UVic
3: has been named a top diversity employer for eight years running, alongside seven other universities, for things like the chair in transgender studies, inclusive athletic and recreational programming, and the transgender archives. But these accolades aren't awarded
5: for work in the Faculty of Engineering. So in that respect, I think that there are many students who are active in trying to foster diversity and inclusion. Um, so I think the, maybe perhaps the faculty or staff would maybe need to sort of step up to that same um, prioritization. So what is
3: UVic doing, if anything, to make that happen with respect to STEM? We learned of a committee that exists within the Faculty of Engineering. It is called the Advisory Committee on Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. We asked Megan about it. So yeah. had, you,
2: had you heard of it ever before? I don't think so, no.
3: We found that many students were unaware of the existence of this committee. Online research yielded no further insights. The goals of the committee, or its membership, were not to be found. Our assumption is that the committee aims to promote equity, diversity, and inclusion, specifically in the Faculty of Engineering. And if this committee exists with the goal of promoting equity, diversity, and inclusion, but is not publicizing the undertakings of the committee and how they're contributing to those goals, how can we be sure of their efficacy?
2: This is Nicola again, talking with Megan. You know, I think it's important to have groups like that from the faculty. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's also important to know what they're doing. Um, what do you what do you think in terms of transparency? What kind of transparency do you think, uh, like this advisory committee should have?
5: Okay, well it sounds like there's been active inactivity. Um, I would appreciate the for the deans office and or the associate dean, like just be candid. If you haven't had any meetings, if you haven't done anything in the past little while, just tell us, that's fine. Um, It would be a shock to hear that a group of faculty had been meeting as recently as this past semester without the involvement of LTD. LTD, Leadership Through Diversity. ESS.
3: The Engineering Student Society. WEX. Women in Engineering and Computer Science.
5: Um, Because my perception is that this, ultimately, the goal of this committee is to better serve students right? I mean, perhaps student and staff inclusive, okay. But um, if you're not talking to your student leaders, um, I think that's an oversight. Um, But on the other hand, you know, if they haven't been meeting, um, they're going to have to remedy that soon. Nicola had noticed that
3: other universities like UBC have public statements about the ways that they promote equality and diversity in their programs, and UVic didn't. That was until six days before this interview
2: took place. I received an email, um, which says, announcing the new Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion webpage. Um, So the email reads, the Faculty of Engineering is pleased to announce that its new Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion webpage is now available. Yeah. We invite you to tour this webpage and discover resources that you may find helpful. Uh, Feel free to use the feedback form to let us know what you think. Um, We also welcome suggestions about other resources you would like to see included. Thank you, Advisory Committee on Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Faculty of Engineering.
3: Megan hadn't yet seen this, so Nicola... Um,
2: But here, I'll show you the website. So, like, here we are.
3: Megan was browsing the new website and then noticed a pretty big oversight.
2: Um, One thing I would like to direct your attention to Mm -hmm. is down here they have links of interest.
5: Oh, no. And
2: if you go under women, do you see any major omissions? Yeah. Yeah. They don't have anything from us. Us being Wex, so yeah. So this is kind of just an interesting little side note. Is like yeah. So I guess some work is being done, but
5: just contact us. We check our email. Our email is gmail.com. No caps, mm-hmm. lowercase. Yes. Those pressure girders.
2: Yeah. So I guess um,
5: how do you like? Yeah. How how does it feel? It feels like, so I, I know that there are people who know WEX is active. So why don't you contact us? We're not, a, we're not one of those clubs that is inactive right now. And, yeah, if you want our email or our website, just ask us. She expects more from the faculty groups that are supposed to have the same goal as student groups. We, we need to hold each other to a higher standard where we um, always have communication between the faculty and the student organizations, the student leaders, um, the student groups between each other, um, so that we don't have these, frankly, abstract web pages. Um, Yeah. The goal of our clubs is not to generate... um, The goal of our clubs is not to be used for publicity by the university. We are here to support students. We're not here to get humanitarian awards. And I feel like if we don't, if people don't talk to us, if the faculty don't talk to us, then when you go and you um, talk about the work we've been doing and you talk about how diverse your student clubs are, it's just hollow. And it's not from the source.
3: One thing that Megan thinks they could do is be honest about the circumstances and address the issues of inequality by facing them head on.
5: I would say all university students, either they themselves have been very anxious at some point, or they know someone, or they've watched someone in their classes eventually stop coming and drop out. Everyone has worries, and no one really knows if they're going to succeed. So why don't we talk about that and address that most women, most people in computer science um, don't know where they're going to go and are desperately trying to get validation that what they're doing is right, that they belong there. Um, so even though it's just easy to say, well, you know, people just, should just figure it out. It's like, no, we got, we're going to help them and we're going to change things from how they used to be. Women in
3: engineering and computer science tries to be as inclusive as possible, but Megan feels like people make assumptions about what they do just because of their name. So, who is making space for other minorities to promote more diversity in STEM programs? There's a group for that too.
1: I feel like it's important to represent, um, like LGBT, in kind of leadership roles and have have uh, someone to like look up to a little bit. And um, so, trying to, trying to take that.
6: So the themes that you would notice were that a lot of people in the LGBT community or just um, like minorities in general weren't represented through um, through like leadership roles in engineering?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, also that there just wasn't very many of us.
6: That is the president
3: of Leadership Through Diversity.
1: My name is uh, Mitch Stevens. I started uh, engineering at UVic in 2014, and I'm on my very last semester of electrical engineering. We promote um, all kinds of diversity within engineering, whether that's uh, increasing like LGBTQ uh, in presence um, or, or women in engineering as well, um, and gender minorities. Um, So we also provide a sense of community for the LGBTQ students uh, and gender minorities. And we're doing this through kind of events and programs that we host.
3: Leadership Through Diversity, or LTD, is the UVic chapter of EngiQueers Canada, which is a national organization that advocates for the inclusion and support of LGBTQ plus students in engineering. But Ltd has had the same issue as Wex between faculty and student-led groups.
6: Have you run into any sort of roadblocks in terms of like re- either recruiting people or getting like funding from the campus? You know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah. So most of the most of the events and programs that we put on are like student-run, uh, run by members of Ltd. Um, but we have had a little bit of uh, difficulty in the past with faculty members. Um, like not me personally. This the club kind of elects a new president per semester. Um, but I know past presidents uh, that say that there's like a little bit of a, a disconnect between the faculty and the students. Maybe
3: through the group, Mitch says that they've been able to work on meaningful projects like hosting weekly hangouts for queer students, fundraising for Trans Lifeline, and hosting mixers for gender minorities in engineering but there's still things he wants to see happen for the future.
1: Yeah, um, I would say the biggest thing is another orientation um, for engineering students. Uh, I don't think it has to be like Frosch Week was before, um, but kind of a way to introduce students to each other right off the start um, and help them kind of create a support network and uh, make some new friends at university because engineering is hard, especially in first year. And uh, it's important to kind of, yeah, meet friends and work on things in groups and uh, ask each other questions and not kind of shut off and be shy and um, try and do things by yourself because it won't work.
3: Mitch acknowledges that the gaps in diversity are not just a problem at UVic groups like LTD exist not just to promote inclusivity among students in STEM programs, but to stimulate real change in the way that these programs
1: work. Yeah, it's important to kind of say that it's like a, a common thing across multiple uh, engineering programs, I think. But yeah, UVic specifically, I think it's just kind of a like lack of of effort almost to change. Like things have been the same way for so long that it takes a A conscious effort to like endorse the change and really want to change, and maybe it's lagging a little bit, but hopefully we can encourage them.
3: Groups like LTD and WEX hope to encourage the university to prioritize offering adequate support services to students and creating and enforcing policy that protects diverse students. Further, the hope is that universities will go beyond advertising their successes, but be responsible for the changes. That means working with student initiatives. But in the end, universities are responsible for changing their own policies. Here's Dr. Swain.
0: And then I just say I really hope that, that universities in Canada just take a hard look at this and start to change policies and do their own reading. Like, leadership needs to do its own reading and its own understanding. And rather than, like, putting band-aid solutions on things and sort of being like, oh, yes, 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 Um, you know, that's nice and everything, or or we're really good at this, so we don't need to do any more of it. Like, I think we've passed that time, and we need to start really making change because the data shows that we're going to be better, we're going to be more innovative if we're more diverse. Like, that is really how we will be better and be more excellent. So, you know, I think we kind of have to go with the data. It's the right thing to do, but it's also, like, this is the proven thing to do. So you can't really argue with that.
3: The desire to change goes beyond the impact to individuals pursuing careers in STEM. As Dr. Swain mentions, the data shows that diversity in STEM improves results. But why does diversity benefit the outcomes of scientific and technological innovation?
4: To start, innovating is creative. Here's Dr. Willerth. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes I know people like to think of scientists and engineers being very rational logical people and like there's some pure science thing, but everybody's background and everybody's culture brings certain things to how you think about it, whether it's your poetry, you know, art or even your science or engineering. And I think that that's something that gets a bit undersold is is when you're looking at engineering is that you actually can be creative.
3: The idea that engineers and scientists are creative is frankly undersold. A common narrative is that engineers are thinking, not feeling logical, not creative, and lacking a social awareness. A social awareness that is crucial, argues Nicola.
2: Yeah, and like, I think it's really interesting speaking from a technical perspective that it is very important for designers and people who are creating things for people to have a not just a purely black and white stance and viewpoint on things, but to actually to be empathetic and to understand nuance because the application of designs is incredibly nuanced and requires incredible empathy. Um, designing something within human factors engineering requires you to understand who your user is, what their use cases will be, what kind of life they live, how they interact with things. It requires a deep level of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and empathize and try and understand them. Um, and designs that lack human factors frameworks suck employing human factors frameworks when designing means keeping
3: the users and different types of users in mind. Designs that are only made with some users in mind can yield fairly severe oversights, making designs that do not work for groups of people,
2: yeah. so yeah, some like very common um, kind of commonly referenced examples are um like the first digital camera. Historically, film photography had calibration conducted
3: using a white test model. Film was optimized for white skin. When digital cameras were being developed, they mimicked the principles that shaped film photography. Sensors search for something that is lightly colored before the shutter releases. When focusing on a dark spot, the camera is inactive. In digital cameras, calibration against lightness is the way that the image is defined. This means that cameras are less effective at capturing images of people of color. Why was this the case? Because the people designing,
2: developing,
3: and testing this technology were largely white.
2: And uh, like kind of like transcription software uh, or the ability for software to pick up um, from voice to text for women uh, or like kind of maybe more feminine voices, uh, it's less effective than for male voices.
3: Studies have found that voice recognition systems aren't nearly as good at interpreting women's voices. This is due to a simple fact. A system designed around men's voices just won't work as well for some women's voices. What may be an annoying reality in some cases, like trying to get Siri to listen to you or have your vehicle's voice-activated features respond, can become a professional disadvantage when the tools used in your workplace have better performance for your male colleagues— like with medical dictation software. Further, representation can impact what research gets prioritized in the medical field. Here's Dr. Willerth.
4: I know I have friends who research different diseases based on what affects their family.
3: This is to say that, intentional or not, personal experience can shape what research gets pushed. And as a result, who is most benefited by medical advances? Even if you could benefit from the type of medical innovation, it might not have been made with you in mind— for example.
4: Like with the first artificial hearts, they were all designed specifically sized like just for men's chests. And so like they weren't like all the mechanics weren't scalable to even go into like smaller women's bodies. And you'll even see it now with pharmaceutical drugs and and dosing just because men and women metabolize their drugs in different ways. And it's if you have a non-diverse team, like they don't even think to, to check those sorts of things, you know, mm-hmm. like... It's just sort of some of those things that come up with drugs where you're just like, how is this? And and there's just a lot of different women's health issues that you're just always shocked how understudied they are, and then things that aren't even necessarily, like, life-threatening to mm-hmm. <laughs> have all these other drugs for.
3: <laughs> these emissions in research can have life-threatening impacts on women and other underrepresented groups. Another example of an emission is the fact that for 30 years, until 2010 government testing of vehicles in the United States only used male crash-test dummies. When female dummies were introduced, they fared significantly less well in testing than their male counterparts. This was backed up in real-life data, too. A 2011 study by the University of Virginia's Center for Applied Biomechanics found that female drivers in actual collisions had a 47% higher chance of serious injuries than the male drivers in comparable collisions— That difference increased to 71% for moderate injuries.
2: Um, So there's a lot of ways that, you know, by being a minority represented in who is designing the things we use, um, we suffer for it in the long run. Like everyone who is not well represented at the table when a product is being designed will suffer later on when they have to use that device because their perspective was never A, understood, or B, considered. And that's unfortunate.
3: The impact of diversity on design shows the importance of groups that represent and advocate for minorities. They do not just benefit the people who they represent. Building diversity, inclusion, and equity into the system in tangible ways that address things like misogyny, transphobia, and racism benefit everyone. And Nicola thinks that having more diversity in STEM means that people can draw more on lived experience, rather than relying on a set of rules that don't necessarily align with our changing values around technology.
2: When when it comes up about like encouraging more women to get into engineering, specifically, or just diverse people in general, the assumption is that they're not currently getting into engineering because their grades aren't as good as their male counterparts, which I would argue... The accuracy of, um, but beyond that, it perpetuates the idea that the only factor that should be assessed when looking at engineers is their grades, and I really disagree with that because we have the situation which is engineers are held to ethical standards. They are people who will inevitably need to be acting according to, uh, you know, ethical lines, and it's beyond just a code of conduct because. If it's just you following rules to a T, the rules can't change as fast as our technology can. Um, You have to be someone who can hold yourself to standards, um, kind of virtuous standards.
3: It goes beyond simply following a code of ethics.
2: There is a responsibility on engineers to an extent. Um, And some people might look at that as a purely legal responsibility. Like, What are your responsibilities under our legal system? But I think if you ensure that you are training people who are, you know, empathetic and ethically minded on a broader scale, you might not have to worry so much about what your laws say. And you'll instead know that you have designers and people with the knowledge who can also incorporate kind of value laden design work and that that's really important to you.
3: The stakes are high for our future. We rely completely on advancements in technology in the modern world, and the people who are working on those advancements need to represent the diversity of the world. Changing the unwelcoming and exclusive attitudes and systems and STEM programs is one way to ensure that everyone is represented. This episode of Taking Up Space was produced by Sarah Sulman, with help from Nicola Watts, Arya Potinen, that's me, and Samantha Bottrill, Our executive producer is Mary Decker. This program is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, give me your ear. Let's uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts.
6: Hey, my name is Sarah Solomon and I am the producer of Taking Up Space here at CFUV. I really didn't know what was in store. There's script writing, there's um, volunteers to coordinate, there's um, finding the the people to interview, finding a story that's going to be interesting to you, the listener. Let me say, I fit two minorities. I am ethnic, (laughs) I'm brown, and then I am a woman. So, um... Definitely, I faced a little bit of prejudice in my life, um, but these were still really heavy topics, you know, sexuality, gender, um, race, class, religion, you know, all these all these things that make up intersectional feminism. It's it's really difficult to approach. And I think that's why a lot of people don't get into it. A lot of people stray away from those really heavy topics because there's so many places to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, um, even if you are well-intentioned and you want to help. So my goal for these podcasts that we created was that they were really accessible, um, that anybody could come in with any background of knowledge and really get to um, take away something once you've listened to the hour. But I've met so many people through this podcast that have worked their way through like the the big points and now they're really um, finessing their opinions on these topics and you get really nuanced, really intelligent conversation um that I definitely learned a lot from I did never consider myself an ignorant person but I learned so much through these interviews that we did and these stories that we told Um, so that's another another thing that I didn't expect especially I've lived in Victoria my entire life and I've never seen a lot of crazy stuff that happens Um, so I was I was hesitant about really focusing on Victoria and its residents because I was thinking you know what stories do we have to tell and let me tell you there are stories and then more stories (laughs)
3: If you like this episode, you should check out Full Circle's upcoming episode about feminism and burlesque called Burlesque, BIPOC Women Reclaiming Bodies.